Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola and I'll be hosting the show. Every week you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. If you scroll down to the bottom of the podcast section of my website, kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers, you will see the diagram for the 360 degree solution to pandemic control. This solution illustrates the risk reduction measures that we need to manage this pandemic and live with the coronavirus safely. Today we are on the orange section and I am interviewing Professor Kirk Atkinson about far UVC lighting an element of environmental mitigation that involves how we reduce the risk of airborne SARS-CoV-2 by having light indoors that inactivates or kills the coronavirus. Hello and welcome to COVID-19 The Answers, episode 12, Far UVC. I'd like to welcome Professor Kirk Atkinson, PhD. Professor Atkinson is an Associate Professor and Associate Industrial Research Chair of Energy Systems and Nuclear Science at Ontario Tech University in Canada. Dr. Atkinson graduated from the University of London with a BSc in Theoretical Physics in 1999, an MSc in Astrophysics in 2001, and an MRes in Image and X-ray Physics in 2002. He then joined the Ministry of Defence as Senior Lecturer in Nuclear Science in the Nuclear Department, the UK's only dedicated nuclear engineering school. He became Technical Lead for Reactor Physics and High Performance Computing and for Radiation Physics and Criticality. Since 2014, in collaboration with Rolls-Royce, he led a multi-million dollar technical effort to develop a high-throughput gamma emission tomography system for imaging and characterisation of spent nuclear fuel. He joined the Faculty of Energy Systems and Nuclear Science at Ontario Tech University as an Associate Professor in January 2019 and began collaborating with research into far UVC with Professor David Brenner's team at Columbia University. Welcome. Hi. So Kirk, could you tell the audience what led you into the world of far UVC technology? Yeah, uh, I had a background for my PhD work in, in radiation biology. Uh, and I found myself a little bit stuck uh, moving my family from, funnily enough, from the UK to Canada. Uh, and I was trying to leverage my, my skills and experience uh, with that background and my background in nuclear engineering uh, and modeling and simulation. Uh, and I sort of stumbled across the work that David Brenner had been doing, who I knew from before uh, at Columbia University. And I noticed that whilst they were doing some really good stuff in the experimental side, uh, the the widespread application, uh, how it would work in practice uh, in the in the environment in a building, uh, wasn't really well worked out at all. So they'd concentrated much more on the laboratory studies and the science of how it does the killing rather than how it would work in practice. And so. Uh, with some colleagues from the UK, uh, we decided to do some some simulation work uh, to try and figure this this kind of thing out, and it's been quite influential, I think, in terms of the findings that we've that we've found. We've actually been able to help uh, the Brenner Group interpret some of their their work, and actually found that far UVC is even better than we thought it was going to be. Oh, that's fantastic! So I'm going to move on to the questions now. I'm going to just have, uh, give a brief explanation of electromagnetic radiation. So electromagnetic radiation is a term used to describe all the different kinds of energies released into space by stars such as the sun. The energy travels at the speed of light and is in the form of waves and photons. When you wake up and see the light from the sun, tune your radio, watch TV, send a text message or warm, warm food in a microwave oven, you are using electromagnetic energy. You depend on this energy every hour of every day. Without it, the world you know could not exist. In the electromagnetic spectrum, there are all types of electromagnetic radiation with various frequencies and wavelengths. The most well-known are radio waves, microwaves, infrared, visible light, ultraviolet and x-rays. 
The electromagnetic waves in each of these bands have different characteristics, such as how they are produced, how they interact with matter, and their practical applications. Today we will be discussing ultraviolet light or UV light, and far UVC light in particular, as it relates to the preventative measures for COVID. This technology is widely unknown and safety of use will be a major concern to educate medical and non-medical people. UV light has different properties and uses in the industry and everyday life, as well as pandemic management and risk mitigation. So Kirk, before we dive into this technology and its application for COVID risk mitigation, let's begin with a very basic understanding of the technology. Can you briefly describe the three different types of UV light and their uses, UVA, B and C? Sure. Uh, so UV light exists uh, at shorter wavelengths than visible light. So most of us may be in school uh, did a little bit of physics and somewhere along the line, the acronym Richard of York gave battle in vain or Roy G. Biv came up. Mm. And so you're going all the way from the red, the R, to the V, the violet. The violet is around about 400 nanometers. When you go a little bit to short to shorter wavelength from there, yeah, so below 400, maybe to as low as 315 nanometers, that's in the ultraviolet range, and that's the ultraviolet A range. So that's what we call UVA. And that's the, the wavelength of light that we're familiar with. It's what causes people to, to tan when they go in the sun. It's what causes skin to age if you don't you know, moisturize and take care of your skin properly. It's what you use in a bug zapper. Yeah. Now, if you go to shorter wavelengths, go a little bit shorter, uh, we hit the UVB range. Yeah. So that's between about 315 nanometers and 280 nanometers. And that, that's maybe less useful in some regards. It's, it can be responsible for causing uh, melanoma in terms of skin cancer. It's one of the ones that we know about a lot. So one of the reasons we should wear sunblock when we're in the sun or protect ourselves. Uh, but it causes fluorescence. Yeah, because you can use it in fluorescent applications. Go a little bit shorter wavelength still, below 280 nanometers, and you enter the UVC range. Now that UVC range pretty much exists between about 200 and 280 nanometers. There are bands of UV light that exist at shorter wavelengths than that. Yeah, what we would call the VUV and the EUV range, and they have specific properties as well. But if we focus on that 280 nanometers down to 200 nanometers range, yeah, where we have UVC, the most common kind of wavelength that, that we know about is around about 254 nanometers. Uh, and that's used in sterilization purposes. When we go uh, towards the far, towards the, the very short wavelength end, that's where we hit what we call far UVC. It's at the far end of the UVC range. Yeah. Uh, it's always existed. Uh, uh, and it's, it's really within the range 230 nanometers down to about 200, with the common ones being between 222 and 207 nanometers. Uh, and that's really been an underutilized uh, wavelength range. Right. And just to clarify for the non-scientific audience, so UVB, when you talk about fluorescence, you mean in lighting. So, for example, nightclub lighting and that, so, that blue lighting you see that we sometimes see in, in shops that kills bugs. That, that's what UVB is used well, that, for. Is well, that that, no, that's not what UVB is used for. It tends to, the fluorescence I mean in, in the sense here is more to do with uh, particular kinds of scientific applications. Uh, you can get fluorescence at all different kind of wavelengths, uh, whether it's UVA through to X-ray through to whatever. All uh, all fluorescence really is uh, is the light that becomes emitted uh, through the excitation of electrons in an atom. So if you go back to school now, mm. many of us probably done chemistry class, maybe physics class, and they would have remembered that the atom is kind of like has a blob in the middle that's the nucleus where we've got some protons and stuff going on and then orbiting around that and they the word the the important word here is orbiting uh are electrons 
And those electrons can live in different shells. So when we cause an electron to be to be promoted from a lower shell to a higher shell, it doesn't necessarily like to live at that higher shell state. So what it does is it relaxes back down and gives off light in the process. And that's fluorescence. Right. Okay. And then UVC, <coughs> when you said it's used in kind of sterilizing properties, that's yep. um, practically speaking, that's things like our operating theaters. They use UVC, um, you know, at night, don't they, to sterilize them when nobody's around. So that's one of its uses too. Yeah. So, so UVC uh, more recently has, has been used. So traditional UVC more recently has been used uh, in the in the operating room, emergency room kind of context, uh, out of hours. Uh, but for the longest time, it's been used in other contexts too. Many of us in here in uh, here in Canada and in, in maybe in the US and other places might take water from from a well, uh, or has fairly unclean water from in the mains, and so they want to sterilize it. Now you can go down to many hardware stores, certainly here in Canada. Uh, and you can buy uh, UV apparatus that will uh, illuminate the water and kill the bugs that are in it. Mm. Uh, you can put the same kind of thing into HVAC systems. So the idea that it's been used for germicidal purposes to kill germs has actually been around for about 100 years. And it's, it's really, really well established. Thank you. And yes, and um, Professor Jimenez talked about it a couple of weeks ago, um, germicidal UV um, C. So what's the difference between conventional germicidal UVC lighting and far UVC lighting? Okay, so it's fundamentally down to down to wavelength. Yeah. So uh, germicidal uh, UV is pretty much what we would call 254 nanometer UVC. Yeah. And that wavelength is what is one of the two principal wavelengths that comes out of mercury gas discharge lamps, which is the fundamental traditional way of, of making UV light. Uh, it has two particular wavelengths, and one of them gets absorbed in the, in the glass, so it doesn't make its way out, but the 254 nanometer does. So it comes out of the bulb, and there's, there's a range of different types of bulb that you can have. That, that employ this technology. Some are very long, some are small. Uh, you, you can you can find them in Canadian Tire. You know, I have one. I bought one uh, a while back myself. The far UVC, it is made at lower intensity in these kind of lamps, so it does exist there. If you could filter out all of the other wavelengths that you don't want, you could you could use you could use it, but it's not necessarily the most efficient way. And what the, the kind of revolution in this kind of field was, was the use of plasma-based uh, light sources and, uh, and eczema lamps pre predominantly. Uh, and these eczema lamps, they, they use particular kind of uh, diatomic mole molecules uh, that you can excite, just like I talked about earlier with the electrons being jumping up to a higher level. And when they relax, they relax at particular wavelengths, one of which is uh, to around about 222 nanometers. Now, that's not the only wavelength that comes out. So you have to use a filter, a specific filter, to filter out the components that you don't want. But these new kind of lamps, they allowed greater intensities of this kind of 222 band uh, and made the, the process of the filtering uh, less troublesome. So it's really only down to wavelength. Mm. And the big thing with far UVC is that it's safer yep. than the conventional UVC. Do you want to talk about that? How much? Yeah, sure. It is? Sure. So if if we, it kind of relates to the history of this, actually. So let's if we went back some amount of years, ten years or so, maybe a decade, it was recognised and and. Uh, Brenner's group at Columbia University was, was one of the pioneering groups in this area. Uh, it was recognized that far UVC wavelengths will penetrate less deeply into tissue, which is the fundamental 
that, that makes UVC light dangerous to us normally. Yeah. So they came along and they figured out if they took this lamp and they took this uh, a particular kind of filter uh, and they brought it together, they could make systems that could be used to 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 kill pathogens, to kill microbes. Uh, now, the way this kind of works is talking about fluorescence and talking about electron movements. Yeah. What happens is every time that radiation hits material, the atoms and molecules in that material, their electrons get affected by the energy that's coming in. Yeah, they can get knocked out. Uh, they can get promoted to higher orbits where from where from they relapse. Now, UVA light actually penetrates really deeply. Yeah. And this is kind of counterintuitive because as you go into shorter uh, uh, to shorter wavelengths, the frequency goes up and the energy goes up. Normally in life, we think about things like X-rays. X-rays are higher energy photons. And we, we, we largely think about them as being damaging. And you go to, the, go to the hospital and you see the radiation sign on the door and you know you're not to go in there because it can hurt you if it's not used properly. So this is where it's kind of counterintuitive in that UVA has lower energy but penetrates tissue more deeply. Thankfully, it doesn't have the energy to cause damage to DNA. UVB does, yeah, which is why people get melanoma. UVC does, yeah, it goes less far in, but still hits cells that are living. Far UVC, on the other hand, is so energetic, yeah, it interacts much more readily with atoms and molecules in the dead skin layers that we have, or the tear layer that we have on our eye, and all the energy gets absorbed before it hits anything that's living, anything where we've got DNA that could be hurt. And that's really the fundamental advantage about far UVC light, is that uh, whilst it's got more energy and can cause damage, it can't make it to those parts of us where we could be harmed. And I like to think about interactions a bit like if you went into a bar, yeah? And you're trying to make your, and it's a busy night. It's a busy night. And you're, you come in the door and you're trying to go to the bar so you can buy a drink or a coffee if you don't drink. Yeah. If there's lots of people in your way, you can have lots of in interactions before you make it to the bar. Yeah. If there's less uh, people in the way, you get to the bar quicker. And this is fundamentally what's happening with the difference between the different types of light. Yeah. So whilst it's carrying damaging energy, yeah, it has so many more interactions on the way to the to the way to the bar, the energy gets lost. Yeah. So that's why it's so powerful. Right. So we get this unique property whereby it can kill germs. Yep. But unlike conventional UV uh, light, it won't cause cancers because it doesn't oh. interact with DNA and living cells and it won't give us cataracts. So yep. we can have a light that shines directly on us, killing the coronavirus in the aerosols um, and, you know, live happily <clears throat> without the dangers of cancer or cataracts. Absolutely. And this is really where a huge amount of work has now been done. So prior to the pandemic, uh, there are a number of groups, obviously the Brenner group being one, the, uh, the Dundee St. Andrews group in the UK, group in Japan, uh, I think Kobe University and, and some others. Uh, they were all already doing work on this. Yeah. So they were looking at, uh, they were exposing skin on, on mice, for instance, uh, and, and the eyes on mice. And they were seeing what the effects were. And obviously, since the pandemic, this is, has taken off massively with many more groups joining the field. And they all see the same thing. Yeah. You can put very large uh, intensities of far UVC light on the skin and not get any damage, none at all. And it's and been repeated over and over. And that's really reassuring that, you know, that experimentation has been repeated and, and you, there is a scientific consensus there. Yep. So how was far UVC discovered? So I, I kind of touched on that a moment ago uh, mm -hmm. when I sort of suggested that 
uh, around about a decade ago, it was noted that these kind of wavelengths wouldn't be able to penetrate as deeply through cells, yeah, through tissue, uh, and therefore not be able to cause harm. And so bringing together the, the technology that had evolved in the lamp space, eczema lamps and, uh, and the like, along with the right kind of filters, allowed it to be exploited. Clearly, it's always existed mm. because it's part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm. It comes out of all UV lamps uh, and almost certainly is produced in the sun uh, and is produced all over. It's just never been able to be exploited because the technology wasn't really there to do it. But once the technology was there, you can see the applications of it, uh, and that and that's where, where we find ourselves now. Okay. So in what scenarios and environments do you think far UVC would be most effective in the prevention of COVID-19? Okay, so I went to a conference last week. It was the first conference I've been to in two years. And a large number of people started the conference wearing masks, yeah? Uh, and they were trying to be mindful of the fact that we know that uh, COVID is carried in the air, and they would be talking to a lot of people. But they realized that when they went into the reception hall and people had a, uh, had some canapes and a, and a glass of wine, and they had this big space with hundreds of people and pretty poor airflow, having a mask on was kind of moot. Yeah? Mm. All the mask was doing was acting as a little bit of a filter about what's going in and out. The airflow in the room from the HVAC systems was clearly insufficient to pull the air in and out. If we had had a technology like far UBC illuminating all of that air while we were in there, the concentrations of, of SARS-CoV-2 or any other airborne pathogen would be being reduced as the far UVC photons uh, get absorbed in the bugs in the air uh, and cause them to be damaged. And if they're damaged, they then don't work properly and they can't infect you. So the spaces where it's very useful is spaces where airflow is very, very bad. Yeah. So when you're outside in the world, you have lots of air around you. The wind blows, you know, other things. There's lots of space. Yeah. You dilute any of the kind of concentrations of virus that people might breathe out. So your risk level goes really far down. Yeah? And that's good. We like that. We know that if you go into a space and you have really good ventilation, it works. Yeah. You can pull a lot of the a lot of the bugs out of the air. Yeah. Uh, by exchanging the air. You could run it through a filter. But the problem with, with all of those is they need to take the air somewhere else. Yeah. And whenever you can't do that or can't can't do that very well, you're going to get it to build up. So uh, I rode the Via Rail train from where I where I live to to Ottawa for this conference, and I was pretty uninspired by the ventilation on the train. Yeah, you can't open the windows. You know, the, the windows are sealed. You know, it wasn't obvious that there was aircon that was working properly. And there were a ton of people in there eating and drinking. So that's a terrible environment to have circulation of aerosol in the air so having far uvc lights in in the in the ceiling of, of the of the railroad car uh would be probably a good idea yeah similarly the classroom yeah uh i have a lot of discussions with colleagues about whether we should have masking still in the schools or not and i try and make the point that a mask is just a filter However good the filter is, it's still only a filter. Yeah. So if if the filter is 50% efficient, yeah, all that does is double the time before you, you get the same concentration as you would have got anyway. If there's an infectious concentration in the air, you sit in the room long enough, it doesn't matter that you're wearing a mask. Yeah. Now, there are ways to get that out of the room, but a lot of schools have put uh, those kind of air purifier devices at the front of the classroom, yeah? And so it pulls the air from the back of the room to the front, past the heads of all the kids. 
kind of a bit of a not well thought through problem here. And it only is when it gets there, does it do with the cleaning. So you're actually spreading the stuff around, which you don't necessarily want. If you had them in the, in the ceiling, again, you could kill some of the concentration of the bugs in the air, of all the bugs in the air. It doesn't really matter which. And this has been proven too. Uh, whilst we sort of were the pioneers uh, of, of the modeling and simulation side of this, my colleagues and I, a group in the UK, along with Columbia University, has very recently, last month, published uh, published a good paper where uh, they, they have actually done some room-sized chamber experiments. And they've found that far UVC can knock out bacteria in the air down to 2% of the concentration, a stable 2% on a constant uh, release uh, in about five minutes. That's, that's equivalent to 184 air changes per hour for that room. Wow. And that's using standard uh, UV limits as well. Mm. Fantastic performance. Yes, that is. That's amazing because, I mean, the best HVAC <laughs> system will give air changes of around six to nine, I think, from memory, <coughs> Professor Jimenez. So that's amazing. So, and again, I think it highlights that you need some form of expertise or some form of um, uh, regulated setup to help schools be, uh, assess their environment and work out which technologies to use, I guess, in tandem to provide the best uh, risk reduction me methods in terms of removing um, the coronavirus. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm obviously pro far UBC. I think I think it's mm. a very good technique. Mm. But like some other, like so many other things in life, it's not the only solution. Mm. And it's not like oh, you should only use far UBC rather than something else. Mm. All measures are needed, like everything in life. Yeah, uh, there are some contexts where it will work better. That experiment that I just spoke about was a very specific setup, yeah? But make that more complicated by having people moving through the space. Mm. You have obstructions so that the airflow is stalled. You know, uh, you know, the room layout is different. Everything then changes, yeah? So when people say that this technique or the other technique will give this amount of performance, yes, it could under a certain specific set of circumstances. And this is where implementation is, is, is really the key thing. It's understanding how the interplay between aerosol, uh, HVAC or other ventilation, uh, other measures that we have in space, be it illumination, be it masks, be it whatever, how they all work together. Because sometimes they work against each other. Mm. And also you've highlighted another property whereby, um, you know, the introduction of far UVC would have wide ranging properties. For example, if it's killing, if your recent uh, research paper has shown that it's killing bacteria to that degree, um, not only is it killing bacteria, uh, viruses, it's killing bacteria and will help to prevent other germs that might be floating around. Um, and also possibly other viruses and bacteria that might cause future pandemics. So it's not something that would just help us with this pandemic. It would help us with, it would, it would have far reaching, far wide ranging properties. Uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, if we think back two years, uh, nobody expected COVID to, to happen or, or to be what it's, what it's been. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it caught everybody a little bit up by surprise. You know, the West in the Western world, especially governments that had pandemic plans in in uh, that 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 had worked on and published before, they they didn't seem to follow them properly. Mm. Uh, one minute uh, they they're saying it's not not uh, an airborne uh, virus, next minute it is. By that point, everybody has already moved moved around. They weren't wearing masks, and it's spread everywhere. Yeah, would we be where we are now had we had? some kind of defense in place in January of uh, 2020. And I don't know the answer, you know, maybe we would have been in a different space, but you could envisage that if you had something like far UVC that sits there passively in open spaces, in public indoor spaces, predominantly in, in, in transit situations, you would suppress 
a lot of infections across the board, whatever they are, be they new or old. Yeah. And if we suppress them, yeah, a bit like the masks do, yeah, if we suppress them, less people catch them. If less people catch them, we're able to handle it better and put other mitigations in place. So I think about things like far UVC as not so much something for COVID now, but for COVID 3.0 that comes along later. Yeah. Or some other pandemic that we haven't thought about yet. Yeah, I think it's really important for 3.0 or future pandemics, whatever they may be. But I think it's also important for COVID because COVID just has a propensity to call such a huge amount of chronic disease. When you're looking at long long COVID fi- figures, um, you know, up to 30% of people that catch COVID <coughs> are going to end up with long COVID if they're unvaccinated. And at best, research, preliminary research is showing that vaccination will reduce that by 50%, but 15% is still a very high number. And then we're also seeing organ damage, possible organ damage with people that are even asymptomatic now. Professor Banerjee, in a previous episode, talked about research uh, mm-hmm. that he'd done to show that. So um, I think, you know, this is the whole point of this program. We need bits of risk reduction technology, whether it be vaccination, whether it be far UVC, whether it be air filtration and uh, ventilation, all working in tandem to keep us safe and and so that we can get back to normal life safely. I think that's what we need. I I think you're right. And, you know, I find it it kind of bizarre, you know, uh, that Western governments, European governments, governments in other countries spend so much money on things like defense yeah which i think is necessary you know but we don't seem to do the same thing in defense for health yes uh and this is when we see the economic cost that when we get it wrong like for covid the economic cost of that if we had done something and invested some money early and been more cautious before and more prepared, I think is the better word. I think things would look very different. So, so yeah. So, for moving forward, for continuing COVID, because it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere, uh, unfortunately, at least not not in the near term. Whatever comes next, I think building in engineered passive solutions is really the best way to bring people back to a normality of life that they want. Yeah, whilst not losing the advantages of uh, some of the more visible uh, protective measures that have been used in the past two years. Yeah. um, Yes. Yeah. So we could, you know, there still might be instances where we need to use masks, but that would be reduced if we had um, far UVC technology and air filtration, people were adequately vaccinated, all of that working in tandem. Is that what you mean? That's exactly what I mean. I mean, having having far UVC there uh, for the vast majority of people might mean that people don't have to wear masks as frequently. And those people that do are the ones that have have uh, more significant concerns. But the people that that sit there now and are worried about their neighbor who's maybe not being as cautious as them, uh, they can get some reassurance that far UVC is picking up the slack. Let's put it that way. And I and I think that make it will make everybody safer. Yeah, and I think you actually bring to mind an important point, because if you take like kids under the age of two, it's really difficult to get them to keep a mask on. Yep. And, and and elderly people that suffer from dementia or people with learning difficulties, very difficult to keep masks on them. So if we had far UVC lighting in those environments, it would really reduce their risk and the risk of those around them. Yes, mm. absolutely. Uh, it's It's a tool that's so useful in many contexts. Right. Okay. You've answered a lot of my questions, which is fantastic. So um, one that sprung to mind is what is the speed and distance that far UVC would work? For example, how far would I need to sit from an infected person 
uh, say if we were in a restaurant and um, I had a friend who was contagious with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and I didn't know it. Um, and we had like a far UVC light shining on us from above, um, you know, illuminating the restaurant. So how close would I need to be or far would I need to be from that infected person with the far UVC light shining on us for me not to be infected by their aerosols? That is a hugely complicated question <laughs> to ask because there is no one answer. And, 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 and that's where the reality of how technologies interplay with the real world, you know, uh, exhibit themselves. Uh, so right now, most of the lamps are working to the current uh, uh, threshold limit values that, 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 are, that exist. Uh, and that is, 23 millijoules yeah, per centimeter squared of uh, of energy in an eight-hour period. So you can pretty much do the math on that and work out that you're just shy of about three millijoules uh, per centimeter squared. So that's that's energy. So we're spreading energy over a small area. Yeah. Uh, and that that is what the limit sort of tells us. At that, at those limits. If you're sitting opposite somebody in a restaurant and the airflow isn't in your favor, uh, all far UVC would do is reduce the concentration that you get. So think of it a bit like a mask. Yeah. Now, if you were closer to the lamp, uh, you would get more intensity. You might go above the guidance level, but then you would kill more, more quickly. Yeah. Uh, if you were further away, you'd kill less. Yeah. If the, if you're in a shadow, yeah. And the lamps above you and you, you know, accidentally cause a shadow to be there. The light can't hit it. So it's only as, it's only as effective as the amount of light it can see. Yeah. And this is where real world implementations are, are a problem. Because if you think about HVAC systems, they circulate air very commonly. They circulate air around a room. So they might move the air closer to the lamp and then blow it back around again. Mm. And then it, it blows in your face. If it's got less concentration of virus there, that's a good thing for you. But I don't think that anybody can say that you can kill all of the bugs that are coming out of, uh, out of a, a friend's uh, mouth if you're sitting there at a table at a restaurant. And I don't think we ever can. Yeah. Uh, and that that then creates its own its own question about risk. Now, some companies have have considered whether having much much higher intensity uh, far UVC sources in between people, almost like a curtain, if you like, mm. you know, could be a much higher higher power. And because you're not in this in that uh, illumination field, uh, you would kill more bugs. Uh, and I think that could work too, and that would reduce it again a bit more uh, still. But the the idea that we can reduce it to zero, I think, is uh, is is highly is highly unlikely. But you could reduce it to uh, sub threshold infection levels or comparable levels to what you'd get outside, which is pretty much what the experiments in the UK uh, recently found. So it's a, it's a bit like what we've been talking about earlier. We need this, I call it 360 degree risk reduction, pandemic mitigation. And other people have called it kind of a Swiss cheese thing, layered thing. So you need bits of everything. So if you're sitting in that restaurant, you want to know that you want to educate that population to get vaccinated because that reduces your risk. Absolutely. You want an air filter or air uh, ventilation, a well-ventilated environment because that would remove more. You yep. want people to test before they come. If they've, say, that person who I'm sitting next to or other people in the room might have gone to a big football match or an indoor concert, you'd want them to encourage them to test themselves before they put themselves back into an indoor environment with others. That would reduce the risk. And then you've got far UVC lighting, which reduces the risk down further. So it's that whole layered effect of risk reduction that we need to educate the population about um, so that they get on board with doing it so that they can get back to some form of safe, normal life. That's more or less what you're saying, really. Absolutely. I mean, I think about cars, 
Yeah, when you drive your car, uh, hey, you wear a seatbelt. So if you do get in a crash, you don't go through the windshield. Yeah, uh, you make sure that your brakes work so that you can stop if someone walks out in front of you so you don't hit them. Yeah, you make sure that uh, that you're, you can see through the windshield so you're not driving blind. You don't drink and drive. All of these things all work together to improve the safety for all of us, both the person that's in the car and the person that is on the street. Yeah. And take any of those out of there and you increase risk. So uh, the important thing is to understand how the risks work with each other. The interesting one that you that you mentioned was far UVC and uh, and ventilation. Yeah. So this is a really key part of the equation is if you get the ventilation profile wrong, you you reduce the effectiveness of the far UVC rather than increase it. So I actually think that in, in, in areas where airflow can't be uh, removed in a, in, a, in a good way quickly, in a, in a meanable way quickly, something like far UVC is a really good thing to put in place. So uh, I have a colleague, she does a huge amount of advocacy for long-term care. Uh, and many of the long-term care buildings are, are kind of old and don't have good ventilation. So if you're thinking about some of those spaces, they're perfect candidates for things like uh, far UVC because they would just sit there passively and uh, that air that's circulating naturally through the room would be uh, somewhat sterilized. And that's the kind of thing where, where, where we, we, we really need to, to think. But it's like, it's like everything. Whenever you install something, if you get some electrical works done, you know, you make sure that the electrician tests the installation before you go and start switching things on so you know it's safe. So I think the same is true when you install far UVC. The mistake would be just to run down the store, get a lamp, stick it on the ceiling and assume it's going to work the way you think it is. But that's the same with everything. Yeah, that's such an excellent analogy you gave of the car and excellent examples there with long-term care and, and where far UVC could be so useful. Um, I think for me, this, this whole series is important so that the public can be educated and demand the technology. And then we need, you know, um, government setups really nationally and internationally where people are trained. We have trained engineers trained that can go around and educate people on how to facilitate these setups correctly. I think there needs to be a whole uh, organizational network to um, to put this uh, technology in place, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I could I could say it now. If you go back, you know, some many decades, uh, you find much more common reference to something called public health engineering. Mm. Yeah, and that doesn't seem to be something that we spend as much time thinking about these days. We think about public health and we think about engineering. But those two things intersecting, I think, is where the next 20 years needs to be. It needs to happen yeah. now, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying to, not saying that <laughs> do it in 20 years. What I'm saying is, you know, it's something that we should be doing. Yeah. yeah? And, you know, the field needs to establish itself so that we understand that, OK, you can reduce infection by changing the way people walk. Yeah. So rather than have them snake next to each other so they're cross-pathing all the time, make them go around a different, a slightly different way. And that then changes the dynamics of the situation. And the same is true with far UBC. You know, uh, yeah, I think, Professor, you, um, Kirk, and uh, Jose Jimenez have really pointed out that, you know, um, we need science and en uh, scientists and engineers to be more involved with public health because how the virus... And, and other pathogens such as bacteria uh, act in the environment is really your domain. You know, the physics of the environment and how things like aerosols, light, et cetera, interacts is, is, is your expertise. And, and as medics, how the bacteria and viruses work within our body is our expertise. So the, the medics have done fantastic jobs, but it's yep. it's only half the solution to us sure. living safely. I think you've really highlighted that today. Yeah, for sure.
Okay, so um, we're running out of time and there's a couple of important questions I wanted to ask. So um, currently, fire UVC bulbs are expensive, partly because there isn't a demand due to the lack of knowledge about the technology and partly because there isn't an LED equivalent. When do you foresee an LED version of the bulb being made available so that they can mass uh, so that they can be mass produced for, say, our homes, for example? So first thing is if we roll back a, a year or two, the lamps uh, were then were significantly more expensive than they are now. So there are a lot more vendors on the market, a lot more people playing in this game. Uh, I think we're still not getting the message out well enough uh, as to the fact that they could be useful. Yeah, and I think in some people's minds they've 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 already moved on. Yeah. And so they're not investing the same kind of considerations they were before. They feel they've got their solutions and that's that. And I think that's flawed. Uh, but I think we're much more in a zone now where we're in the comparable to water sterilization cost range. So that is still expensive relative to your, you know, your standard kind of uh, energy efficient light bulb that you that you stick into your fitting at home. Uh, and I'd say we're still some ways away from that. The LED thing is interesting. It's easier to make LEDs for longer wavelengths. Yeah. And this is fundamentally where it becomes a technology problem. Uh, and it might well be that you can make far UVC uh, LEDs. And there, there are people that do work on this already. Uh, but their efficiency and their intensity, their output, isn't necessarily very high. So I think if you really wanted to speed things up, you want somebody with sufficient money to scale the technology that already exists so that it's cheaper uh, and can be mass produced more quickly. And whilst there are big companies involved, what you need is you need, you need an Elon Musk or somebody like that to come out and pump up a lot of money to, to make it so. And then it will take off, yeah? And then the market will do the rest. Because none of this stuff is very hard to do, just that it will scale to demand, yeah? So demand has increased, competitors exist, price has come down already. Price will continue to come down, you know? If we if we went back and think, thought about how much cell phones cost when they first come out, uh, and now think about that you can buy them and they're almost disposable, yeah? That, that, that cost can really change quite rapidly. So I think it's less about waiting for the LEDs, although the LEDs is a kind of neat solution, and they will come in time. Uh, I think it's more about getting the message out there to the people that can influence purchasing power, and then the market will do the rest. That's an excellent answer, Kirk. Thank you for that. So can you talk about the research that you did? You talked in the, in the beginning about how the research you and your team did enhance the research that Professor um, Brenner did in, in Colombia. Could you talk a little bit about that, what, what, what you've done? <clears throat> yeah, sure. So in 2018 and then in 2020, uh, the group in Colombia made some experiments with uh, a benchtop chamber. This is before they managed to get access to the one in the UK, which I spoke about earlier. And this benchtop chamber had sort of an inlet and an outlet and, and blew some, some air through it that had been seeded with coronavirus. It was a different human coronavirus, but uh, it's very much representative. And the way this, this system was set up, it had a kind of window and a lamp on the outside and some structures and various things were happening. And they made a rough approximation about... This is the size of the chamber. This is the speed of the air. And then when they, they looked at their results at the end for the amount of illumination and the reduction in the infectiousness of, of the virus that was in the air, so how many virions had been killed effectively, they made, an, they made a, an estimation of what the susceptibility of the coronavirus was to far UVC. But it neglected a lot of things, yeah, because when you blow uh, through, through a tube, you get drag at the sides. Mm. So that means it slows things down, yeah? So if any virus that's near the edges, 
is staying in the light longer. And actually, the, the, the virus that's in the middle, being blown through the middle, moves the quickest. So stays in the light comparatively less time. And then there's shielding effects and distance effects that they hadn't really accounted for. So we were able to help them with that and actually showed that their susceptibility was about half of what it really was. Yeah. And that was what, what that was the key finding. Uh, and we've had a couple of papers out with them on, on that topic specifically. Uh, so it shows that actually for coronavirus, you know, human coronaviruses, far UVC is exceptionally useful. And uh, coronavirus is is very sensitive. Now you you remember I talked about the the fact that uh, the far UVC couldn't make it through the skin, yeah. Because these viruses and these other pathogens float around in the air, they're so small. Those far UVC photons, light rays, they're able to uh, to get absorbed by them, uh, and fundamentally that's what uh, what what this thing does and. The susceptibility is, is really a measure of how well far UVC or any other light, how good it is at killing that particular pathogen for a particular energy or a particular amount of time or area. Great. Well, um, we're practically out of time. And I just want to thank you, Kirk, for your contributions today. I really wanted to inform the audience of this amazing technology that has the scope to change all our lives and help us to live safely with this coronavirus. And you have really facilitated that. Thanks to you and your colleagues for all the marvellous work that you're doing to keep us safe. That's, that's just not probably welcome. I mean, I think there are lots of people across the world doing lots of great stuff. Uh, and we actually talk to each other, which is a good thing, yeah. Because that communication is is really is really a key thing. Sharing the results will mean that we're quicker to respond to to threats. Very much. I think the most successful aspects of the pandemic has been the collaboration and the openness of science that that's been facilitated. Absolutely. So. Please join us for next week's episode where I'll be interviewing the president of the University of Arizona, Dr. Robert C. Robbins, about the business case for COVID-19 pandemic mitigation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers.